been a great privilege this weekend to sit under the preaching of God's Word uh, with Brian Chapel, who's here with us. Uh, Brian has been a friend of mine for more than 30 years, and God has used him and the church greatly that he helped to plant or was the first uh, organizing pastor, I guess, a downtown Presbyterian church in, in Greenville, South Carolina. If you go to Greenville, uh, and I know many of you do to go to the restaurants and so forth, but uh, you ought to visit th that church. But uh, Brian and Dana have been here with us this weekend. You can read a little bit about him, where he served with campus ministry and so forth before that. We welcome you here, Brian. Glad you're here. Good morning. It's good to see you and worship with you. And, and uh, it's been so good to meet many of you. Thank you for all your hospitality and your kindness to my wife and me. My wife is Dana. She's with me this weekend. Um, I want to invite you to look at Romans chapter 10 with me. And there's one verse in the program, but I'm going to read a longer passage. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. So if you know the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Do any of you know someone who has hiked the Appalachian Trail, hiked the whole AT, do you? Uh, I have not hiked the AT and have no intention to. But uh, my understanding is that it's about 2,200 miles with a lot of up and down in it, very arduous. I knew one student when I was a campus minister who took a semester off, he hiked the AT and really athletic guy, strapping guy. And when he came back, he just, his arms were pipe cleaners. He had burned through so much body fat because the trip was so arduous. Uh, it's 2,200 miles. People who study this kind of thing and, and do the math have, have estimated that the Apostle Paul in his missionary travels covered about 15,000 miles. And that was not all on foot, but when he was on a ship, it was not a great ship and it was not comfortable not the comforts you'd find on a, on a boat now. No planes, no car, no truck, no bus. Arduous and over years. And the reason I bring that up is that this passage is a window into why he did that. Why did he cover all those miles? We're used to that story, but why did he do that? And this is Romans chapter 10, and just before I read this, just to set this up, it's in a section of his letter to the Romans that's dealing a lot with ethnic Israel, ethnic, ethnically Jewish people. But all of a sudden in this passage, he starts using the language of everyone and all. And again, it's a window into why did Paul cover all those miles? Why did he get beat up and get stoned? and get flogged, and get punched. Why did he do that? Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we are here to worship, and we're not gathered in our name. We're not gathered in the name of First Presbyterian Macon. We are gathered like all your children around the world in the name of your Son, Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior. And so, Father, as the word is opened, we pray that this will not be filler or just a lesson that we will not check out. Oh, Lord, if we come tired or cynical or unbelieving or angry, would you help us? Help us as we actually are. You remember that we're dust. Would you enable us to worship you as we listen? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. My wife, Dana, and I are both from broken homes. And in neither case was it a worst-case scenario, so I don't want to misrepresent that. Not, not a worst-case scenario, but broken homes. And uh, I think we, we feel that most acutely at holidays, just you're trying to keep everything even and make all the stops. And it's just sort of a reminder that we're not all together like we, like we once were. And so when, when Dana and I got married and, and God gave us children, we have three children now, you know, I started to think about like, what will it be like one day when, when we're together and, and Dana and I are not making these stops, you know, as, as this couple with no children, but we're, we're gathered together as our own family. And I, and I liked that mental picture. I liked thinking about that. I was also praying for my children to know the Lord. You know, like, uh, like it says in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to, but to fear him and to know him and love him and walk in all his ways. And I pray that for my children, that they would know him and fear him and love him and, and walk in his ways. And it was several years before it hit me that, that I was praying and potentially sowing the seeds of the destruction of my own mental picture. And what I mean by that is that if the Lord does grab their hearts and they do fear him and love him and walk in all his ways and serve him, they might just go off somewhere. 
and serve him elsewhere and make him known elsewhere, maybe through their work, maybe through the proclamation of the gospel. I was so, I'm sowing the seeds of the destruction of my own mental picture. We might call it kingdom disruption, where, you know, just when things were like we liked them, someone leaves in Jesus' name and messes up the formula. I told your own pastor, Justin, that his, uh, his, his introduction yesterday at the, at the meeting of Ponch was maybe the greatest missions conference intro I've ever heard. He said, Ponch, welcome to the stage. I hate seeing you up here. <laughs> because we know what that means, and she's loved. Understood what he meant. Um, I, I want to think about what drove Paul to go and go and go and go. And why people who were impacted his ministry, they also went. And so all kinds of homes and gatherings of believers were radically disrupted. And I want to I consider two things from this passage. Uh, first off, Paul's agenda. What was his agenda? And then what was his method? So Paul's agenda and Paul's method. This first point, Paul's agenda, I want to think about three things if you're taking notes. Salvation, righteousness, and personal response. Salvation, righteousness, and personal response. Now, salvation, look back in verse 9. We've heard this twice this morning already. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, if you've been around the Bible and you've been around church and sermons and Bible studies, you've heard the language of being saved. And sometimes we don't stop and identify saved from what? You know, if, 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 uh, if you had a flash flood in Macon and you were driving through some watery area and you thought, ah, I think I can make it. Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> think I can make it. And then so you're going through and the water's higher and your car stalls out and then it starts to fill the car and, and you're about to be swept away. And if somebody got to you and rescued you from there, I mean, we would know what you were saved from. You were saved from drowning in water. When we ask what are human beings saved from in Paul's language, it really takes us back to the beginning of Paul's letter. He speaks about the wrath of God as being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of human beings. <clears throat> There's a, a pastor that some of you would know. He's, he's with the Lord now, but Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a Welshman by upbringing, but most of his pastoral ministry was in London, close to Buckingham Palace. And toward the end of his life, I think around 1980, 1981, he was interviewed by Christianity Today. And uh, at the end of the interview, the, the writer said, well, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, are, are there any final words you'd like to share with our readers? And of all things that he could say, he said, flee from the wrath to come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my privileges as a pastor in my own church that I share with our elders and our other pastors is that when someone wants to join our church, we'll meet with that person beforehand just to hear about their background and their interest in joining, and, but, to, but to see if they understand the gospel. You don't have to pass the theology test, but you need to understand the gospel. You need to confess your faith like Romans 10 says. 
And, and I like to ask people sometimes, I'm going to ask you in a second what's the good news, but I want to ask you first, what is the bad news? Here's how our catechism defines the bad news. All mankind, by their fall, every person everywhere, all mankind by their fall, lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. That is the bad news. That's what believers are saved from. That's salvation. What about righteousness? Look in verse 5. Righteousness is part of Paul's agenda. He says, now this echoes what's developed more in the beginning of the letter. He says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. In other words, all right, if you want to try, there's a righteousness before God of you obeying the law well enough. And the success rate is one. One person did it, and he's not you. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, I'm dipping into the earlier part of Romans. And by the way, whenever I preach and teach, this is the past, this is the future. So I'm dipping into the earlier part of Romans. But Paul has made it very clear that God is righteous. And his righteous demands flow out of who he is. He, he doesn't conform to some outside righteous standard. He is the standard in being the righteous God that he is. And his righteous law reflects who he is. And so his judgment will be righteous and it will conform to the standards of his righteous law, which spells doom for everybody who fails to meet it, which is everyone I'm looking at and the preacher. And if you will trust the Lord Jesus, if you will entrust the whole of your life to him, a righteousness can be given to you. It's not of you. It's not of your obedience. But it's a righteousness from God through faith alone. And I'm tempted, and I'm not going to do this, but I'm tempted to say, would you please raise your hand this morning if, when God looks at you, he sees you as being as righteous as his own son. But every believer should raise his or her hand. That if your faith is in Christ, a righteousness, the righteousness of God himself has been imputed to you, given to you, credited to you. That's definitely part of Paul's agenda. But, but there's this other part, and that's responding to the Jesus who achieves this for those who believe in him. Personal response to this good news. Look again in verse 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. Now, we're two days from Valentine's. I've got to stop and say this. Your heart includes your feelings, but it's not just your feelings. 
Biblically, your heart is the control center of all your life, your thinking and your feeling and your willing and your secrets and your aspirations, the trajectory of your life, your plans that comes from your heart. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And that's Paul's agenda, that every human being needs salvation. Every human being needs a righteousness that we cannot earn ourselves. And every human being who falls within the sound of this good news, that's the answer to the bad news, needs to personally respond to it. Your mom or your dad or your grandparents or your church body cannot respond for you, but you need to respond to it. But I want to say this before I, I, I go to his method. Please don't hear Paul as going around the world just to give everyone who will listen to him and respond to him the way he wants fire insurance. Look at the language that he uses in verse 12. This is where we need to slow down and see what's there. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. And get this, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And do you know why Paul could write that? Because he experienced those riches. And he would mention in his letters and he would mention in his testimony that when I was a persecutor of this Jesus and insolent and wicked, he saved me. I'm the chief of sinners. And he experienced those riches being poured out on him. Not a God saying, okay, well, if you'll, trust, if you'll trust my son, then I will tolerate you till I guess you have to live with me in heaven. But right now, every spiritual blessing in Christ will be lavished on you. If Paul wanted that for every people group, Jew or Gentile, everywhere in the world, that was his agenda. So what's his method Again, if you're taking notes, three things. Hearing, preaching, sending. Hearing, preaching, sending. Let's start with, with hearing. Look at verse 14. That second question in verse 14. How are they to believe? Now, they is everyone who needs this righteousness, everyone who needs to be saved, everyone who hasn't responded to him yet. How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? Look in verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, this reminds me what Jesus would say in his own preaching and teaching. He would be speaking to a crowd, and, and if you've read the Gospels, you've read this. He would come sort of to the end of his lesson or the end of a parable, and he would say, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, everybody whose hearing worked heard him. But what was he saying? Everyone that can hear received the audio, <laughs> received the audio signal, but in your heart did you hear me? And that's happening in this sanctuary right now. The same word of God is going out right now, imperfectly. But the word is perfect. 
And the gospel is going out right now. And I have no power. Chip has no power. No pastor here has any power to cause anyone to hear. But some of you are hearing. And presently, some of you are not. But Paul wanted everyone to hear the gospel. Um, There's a great story about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, great British minister, uh, 19th century. And in 1857, when India was still a part of the British territory or British holding, there was this huge mutiny in India. And so Parliament called a fast day to pray about this Indian mutiny. And so on this fast day, churches met and they worshiped and they fasted and they prayed. And so this provision was made. If you don't have a church home, you can go to this beautiful glass building called the Crystal Palace and Charles Spurgeon will be preaching. And so that day he preached to 23,000 people without a microphone. And the, d- the day before he preached, he went to do what we would call a sound check in the Crystal Palace. And so he got up where he would be speaking. There's men still setting up the benches and the scaffolding. And he looked up and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And he found out later that a workman around the corner out of sight heard him and was converted. And I read an article about this and the writer said, aren't you glad he didn't say check one, two, three. (laughs) But the power of the word of God, the power that we don't have in and of our own argumentation or our own personality must be heard. Which then means what? It must be preached. It must be proclaimed, this thing that gets quoted and misquoted about preach the gospel wherever you go, use words if necessary. You have to use words to proclaim the gospel. You can embody it in your actions, but the gospel is verbal and must be preached and proclaimed. Look back in verse 14. Second question, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching. Look up at verse 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. In that passage from Acts 10 that was read as the scripture reading, Peter said that, you know, Jesus went about doing good and he helped all those who were oppressed by the devil. Oh, did he? No one has done more good deeds than Jesus. But is that what he led with? Those confirmed his claims. Those were God's way of saying, this is my son whom I love. You need to listen to him. These miracles are pointing to deeper kingdom realities. He must have virtually eradicated diseases from Galilean villages and Judean towns. But what did he lead with? He preached and he taught For people to hear the gospel that all of us need so desperately, the righteousness from God that we need, which is the only way to stand before the living God and not only be accepted, but welcomed and loved and brought into the family. It must be proclaimed. And it's amazing what God can do with that. An example that I always think of is in our own church. Years ago, a, a woman started coming to our church, a young woman from China. She started coming with friends. She was working in upstate South Carolina as a translator. 
And when I tell you she had no church background, I mean she had no church background. She didn't know who Moses was or David or anybody. And she starts coming with a friend. Now, I didn't know that till later. So I'm just preaching the way I normally preach. And so after a few weeks, months of her coming, she reached out to me and said, I'd like to meet with you. And I said, great. And I heard her story. And she said, well, I wanted to tell you that I would like to become a Christian. And we pray for that. And I just found myself looking at her saying, are you serious? And she said, yes. And I said, well, that, I mean, that means you give the whole of your life to Jesus. Is that what you want to do? And she said, yes. I said, if you talk to your parents about their thoughts about it, they're back in China. She said, they, they, they support what I'm doing. I was almost trying to talk her out of it. It, it seemed like at one point. But it was, I'm telling you, I'm a preacher for a living. And it was weird. It was weird that it was like Jesus's parables that I'd been up there and I'd scattered seed on several Sundays. I didn't know who was being hit by it. I didn't know what God was going to do with it. And a woman, English is her second language. She has no biblical background, says, I would like to become a follower of Jesus Christ. That is not from Brian. That is from the power of the word in the gospel. The salvation of everyone who believes. We have to proclaim it, which then means, and this is the disrupting part, that we must send. Verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Ultimately, who is the sender of those who go to other places? to verbalize the gospel. Oh, at the end of the day, who is the sender? Is it the church? No. I'm about to talk about the church because the church is critical. And I love that this church sends people. The sender is the risen Christ. At one point, Jesus actually said, earnestly pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. He's the sender. Having said that, who recognizes who's sent? And who is to exercise discernment to say, maybe we don't believe you're sent, or we don't believe you're sent yet, or we don't believe you understand this gospel well enough to convey it to others in a healthy way. Who recognizes who is sent? The Lord's church. To look at her own people and to see how God brings this convergence together of interest on someone's part and a need in the world and resources that are needed to get there and to live there. For all that to come together with all kinds of prayer and sleeping on it and sometimes crying and sleepless nights, for all that to converge, it's the Lord Jesus' church that looks, and at her best, exercises discernment to say, we think you need to go. So what should we do with all that? Paul's agenda is that everyone hears this gospel, the good news for the bad news. His agenda is people have got to hear, and if they're going to hear, we've got to have preachers. And if we're going to have preachers, we have to send preachers and send out the people that Jesus raised up. So what do we do with all that? And I want to end with this. Um, I attended Covenant Theological Seminary. The chapel at Covenant 
Theological Seminary is named after one of its uh, former professors and leaders, Robert Rayburn. Robert Rayburn. He was before my time. But the stories were told about Dr. Rayburn, and one, he taught preaching. He taught homiletics. And apparently, he would tell his young charges, he would say, and some of you are about to love Dr. Rayburn when I tell you this. He would tell his young charges, all right, men, when you get out there and you're standing up and you're preaching a sermon, I want you to see me in the back of the sanctuary and I'm staring at you. I'm standing up and I'm staring at you with my arms crossed and I'm saying, so what? I mean, have you ever heard a sermon at the end where you thought, there was some good information, but so what? Okay, so he's standing back there and he's looking at me. So here's what I want to say to you. Finance the feet of the people who need to go. Whether it's through faith promise, which is teed up waiting on you, or whether it's through just your, your own giving as your heart is led, give generously. The resources in this room are staggering. And I will never see how you respond to this. That is between you and the Lord. But finance the feet of those who want to go so that they are not distracted by that or hindered by that. To give generously that everyone would hear this gospel which can save anyone. But the other thing is this. Let them go. I don't like change. And I don't like disruption. And in our own church, it's kind of like just when a little community group, that's our home groups, just when they get just right and comfortable and fun, then we need to multiply. That's our word we came up with for split. It's like just when I, yeah, just when I got it where I liked it, and then it multiplies and changes. But then the, the gut-wrenching version is when we plant a new church, a daughter church. We've planted two, and we're starting to talk about the third one. And there have been times when I've heard who's going out where I've just thought, <coughs> they're going? And we've sent families out. We sent a family to Edinburgh a few years ago that are golden. It's disruptive. Let them go. We will be together in the new heavens and the new earth with no disruption forever. But we are not there yet. We're the church militant. So let them go. Do not let, if you're a parent or a grandparent, do not let your mental picture for your future and for holidays and for us being together and always being vacationing together, do not succumb to that. Let them go and make Christ known. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we pray that we would be able to sing with more conviction. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Father, for those who need to go, whom you've equipped, whom you've burdened, whom you've gifted. 
Do you help them to sing Let Goods and Kindred Go, but for their friends, their moms and dads and siblings, would you enable them to say Let Goods and Kindred Go and sing it? Lord Jesus, send your laborers into your harvest, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.